Welcome to Love and Compassion, a podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. Welcome to the Love and Compassion podcast with Giselle. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast or write a review to see more of our show. Today, our topic is on cyberbullying, cyber kindness, compassion, and youth mental health in social media. Our guest is an associate professor in psychology and youth and children's studies at Wilfrid Laurie University. She's also director of the Child and Adolescent Research and Education Lab, where she guides a team of students on various research and outreach projects. Her research broadly focuses on child and adolescent social emotional growth as they develop into this technologically advancing world. She also does work on how to promote cyber kindness through social emotional learning, emotional regulation, and compassion. Please join me in welcoming Danielle Law. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well, enjoying the sunshine. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome on the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk about your research on cyberbullying and your insights on how compassion may be really helpful and kind of in this technological world. Um, can you share a little bit about what got you interested in bullying and specifically cyberbullying? Well, a bunch of different things kind of happened in my life that brought this into its being. I was actually socially bullied in junior high. Many people are and they experience these things. So At that time, it was more about thinking about why do people have to be mean and why are they being mean to me, right? But then as I got into grad school and started looking at some of the ways that people are interacting with technology, and so this is back in 2004. So before social media was really a big thing, before cyberbullying was even something that we thought about, I was thinking more about how does technology impact our lives in general? But then when I started my PhD, I was hired by the Vancouver School Board to be their project coordinator for their Facing Up to Cyberbullying project. And this is when I really started to learn more about what cyberbullying is, how it impacts kids. I was working a lot with the high school students and realized that this was really an understudied area. In fact, nobody was doing it at this time. This is in about 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. And as I was working with these teenagers, I started to realize that we really have to learn more about what this is if we want to give good advice on how to help them. (laughs) And so we were kind of flying um, off the seat of our pants, I guess, trying to figure out what we could do. And we ended up creating a manual for teachers and a DVD that was created by the teens on how to educate younger kids about what's going on online and what does responsible internet use mean. But a lot has changed since then. (laughs) So anyway, this this experience with the school board and then my own personal experience with bullying in general led me to want to study this area more. Mm -hmm. And 
just understand what are the things that are going on here and how is cyberbullying different from traditional bullying? Is it different? And yeah, that's kind of what led me down this path. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It's so funny. We've all kind of had these experiences that kind of have an impact still for, for some of us still have an impact in our lives. And in your case, it, it had a positive impact in that you became a researcher in that area. Can you share a little bit about what the difference between physical bullying and cyberbullying? Yeah. So bullying in general. So the definition of bullying is that there must be intention to harm. So just because someone does something mean to someone, if they didn't mean to harm them, like it was a perceived harm. So for example, if you bump into someone in the lunch line, someone might feel harm, but the intent of the person who bumped into them was not harm. So that would not be considered bullying. So there must be intention to harm. There must be a power differential. So maybe the person is bigger than the other person or louder. And then also it's repeated over time. So Mm -hmm. those three components, intention to harm, a power differential and repetition over over time is kind of the the accepted definition of what bullying is and then when we incorporate technology into that and we start doing these things online or using a f- different forms of technology then it becomes cyberbullying so when it comes to traditional bullying i think many of us kind of know what that is but Traditionally, the person is usually bigger and stronger than the person being harmed. They are usually louder. They might exhibit a lot of confidence and it's usually happening in front of a lot of people. So they're engaging and embarrassing the person being harmed in front of a group that's physically there. And, but the audience is limited. So it's limited to the people in the hallway or on the playground or in the classroom. Cyberbullying is is different in the sense that anyone can post, right? So you don't have to be the bigger person or the louder person anymore. Any smaller person or quieter or shyer person can post online and it can happen at any time, any time of the day in the comfort of your own home and no one your parents, adults, can't really see that it's going on, right? But hundreds or even thousands of people can now see the post and make comments. And it's also oftentimes harder to to take the posts down. And if there's a lot of anonymity too, right? You can create an account, not use your real name, and people don't won't necessarily know that you're doing it, but you still can see the feedback. You can see how many people viewed it. You can see Mm. the comments and that can give you that positive feedback to maybe want to engage in it more. So while there are some differences when it comes to cyberbullying and and traditional bullying, the underlying causes of of bullying and and aggression is actually not the technology. So the technology is not Mm. causing harm, right? Like we often want to say social media is the cause of cyberbullying Mm -hmm. or it's because of the internet, right? But technology is simply providing another venue for people to express themselves. And oftentimes, like a lot of the research shows that traditional bullying experiences among the same people are also occurring online. So it's not like these types are doing it offline and these types are doing it online. It's all intermeshed Mm -hmm. because 
our phones are in our pocket and it's part of our everyday second, <laughs> right? Yeah. Our everyday minute. And so there's no online and offline anymore, right? It's just, this is the world. And now we have this technology that allows us to express ourselves online. And yeah, we, it's not necessarily the technology. It's mostly about broken relationships, right? So what a lot of the emerging research is showing now is that bullying is not a technology problem. It's a relationship problem. And mm -hmm. so we need to be focusing more on on healthy relationships, how to cultivate healthy relationships and healthy communication and less on the technology piece. Yeah. And thank mm -hmm. you for mentioning that. That is so powerful. It, you know, it, it does make me think a lot of the times we tend to, to see things either as good or bad, like technology is either good or bad. Technology can be used for good and can be used for bad. I think what you said is so powerful because it is about relationships. It is about how do we get kids to understand the importance of healthy relationships, the importance of kindness and compassion. So how do you think we could start to address or, or what are some of your thoughts around how we should be addressing some of those healthy relationships? So some of the relationship issues maybe within the school system? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, and there are a number of things that are happening in this area. And social emotional learning is, is one area that more schools are starting to embrace, which is trying to help encourage students to develop better cognitive capacity and social and relationship and behavioral regulation. So how can we help young people, but also adults become aware of the feelings that they might be having, how to engage with those feelings, and then how to respond to something that they may not like. So oftentimes, especially in these kind of, these bullying types of relationships, we might feel harmed in a certain way, or we might feel like we want to do harm to someone. And rather than pausing, we immediately react. So we have this, this tense feeling and we react and we say something mean, we feel disconnected, or we feel like we want to boost our self-esteem. And so we react and we might do something mean to somebody. But ultimately, what social emotional learning will try to do is, is help individuals to pause. And rather than react, it would be more about responding and recognizing, okay, I'm having these feelings, how do I interpret those feelings? And now how can I respond in a different way that's not aggressive? And so I'm working on a few projects right now, looking at social emotional learning and lots of people, this is well documented in the field of how social emotional learning is, is beneficial for creating a sense of belonging in schools and helping to maintain and cultivate healthy relationships in schools and also into adulthood. So many children who engage in social emotional learning kind of workshops and training and have that culture built into their school at grade three actually do really, really well later on into their teenage years. They perform better academically. They have better mental health. They have better relationships and they're just better able to understand themselves and others and show kindness and empathy well after that time when they were in elementary school. And so this is what we're trying to encourage now is, is this idea of creating sense of belonging through social emotional learning which is excellent mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just curious as to 
Is there any possibility to have these, or it's a school system considering having these kinds of trainings or courses for kids that are older? Because, I mean, you're talking about a, a younger cohort that could be followed and potentially that will translate in kind of in how they, they treat themselves and others in different environments. But what about the kids that are engaging in this right now? Mm-hmm. What sort of strategies are they using for them? Because I think one of the things I, I'm going to be frank that I worried about was that the school system's approach to bullying has been, is, is, you know, as I know some of your historical papers had said, very traditional, like they use the mm-hmm. same structured approaches. And it was always a power over that there was a perpetrator versus victim in the, and it was to really just put power over on the, perp, the supposed perpetrator or to suspend them, to kind of alienate them from the school. And that doesn't really address the problem. So I'm wondering sort of whether there are some new strategies they're considering for cyberbullying or how are they bringing that social emotional piece into the schools now? Right, so schools do things in different ways. So, and different schools have different cultures and different types of communities. As you mentioned, there is this kind of zero tolerance culture that we have and that zero tolerance to bullying culture. The research has actually shown that they don't work because we're basically punishing and taking this punitive approach and telling, maybe suspending kids, but not actually addressing the problem. So not addressing what is the root cause behind this aggressive behavior, right? And and then we try to apply that kind of principle to online. So we'll say, oh, if well, if if aggressive behavior is happening online, then we need to take these devices away. This is the way to eliminate it, is to take away the devices. But the problem with that is it's a band-aid solution. It it doesn't teach kids responsibility. And a lot of young people, especially those who are being harmed, are less likely to tell an adult that they're being harmed because they're afraid that the adult will take away their device. And so now you have this person who is being harmed online, who doesn't know where to go to, and doesn't feel like they can talk to an adult about it. And because of fear, they're scared if they tell an adult, they will be punished. Because we have to remember that their entire social world is online. And even if we think about our own social lives as adults who are also constantly on our phones, our social lives are online. What if someone told you that they're going to take your phone away, right? And so it's the same thing for for teenagers. They don't want to be punished for expressing the struggle that they're going through. And of course, we don't want that to happen. We want them to share with us. And so we need to focus less on, and it's understandable why adults want to do this. They feel that anxiety and it's like, okay, well, the way to protect you then is to take away the technology. But we have to remember it's not a technology problem. It's a relationship problem. So how do we cultivate healthier relationships then without taking away devices, maybe set boundaries, but not take them away. And it's slow moving as we translate research to bring them to practice. So more um, research is showing that we need to be focusing more on these relationships, but it's slower for schools to adopt these things. Mm. And so, I mean, we, I think at pro D days and stuff like that, they might have workshops on these things, but I'm not sure to what extent they are implementing some of the strategies that the, the research is suggesting. Can we talk about 
the reasons that people bully. I really kind of sit and think, and just like you, when you were younger, you think to yourself, what makes a person want to hurt someone else? And when I've spoken to young people who have been both a victim and have bullied other people, there was elements of belongingness. There was elements of expressing hurt and wanting the hurt to be shared with someone else. So what have you found or have been the main reasons why people bully in particular? There are a number of different reasons which you touched upon. One reason is it's a self-esteem. So what research has found with bullying in general is that there are two factors that can influence someone to harm one another person. And one is that self-esteem is high. So people with very high self-esteem are likely to harm others because they want to maintain that feeling of having self-esteem. And usually that comes with being higher up on the social hierarchy. So they're very popular. They have self-esteem, high self-esteem, and they want to maintain that. And so they harm other people in order to keep that high status. And really there's fear, right? I'm scared that someone that I'm going to be bumped down the hierarchy and become less popular and less people will like me and have a disconnection with others. So in order to maintain my status and maintain what I think is connection, I am going to hurt other people. Right. And then the, another reason is lower self-esteem. So people with very low self-esteem might hurt other people to elevate themselves and to make themselves feel better. And oftentimes in both, whether it's high self-esteem or low self-esteem contexts, there's, when you hurt somebody else, there's often people watching you, right? You're very vocal about it. You're loud. So if it's happening, you know, traditionally you're loud, there's usually a group of people will crowd around you or people will turn their heads and watch you. If it's online, people are liking, making comments. You can see how many people viewed it. This gives you a sense of power and it's, it gives you some positive reinforcements. Like, look at how many people are liking this, right? And so you feel good. And the reward systems in the brain start, start to activate because like all these people are giving me praise for doing these mean things. I feel so good about myself. And so you continue to do it. And so, but the bottom line is when it comes to self-esteem, it's that there's this there's something going on inside where you feel disconnected and you feel fear, whether it's low or high, and it's either trying to maintain it because you're scared it's going to come down or trying to elevate it because you don't feel connected in the first place. So that's one reason. And I mean, sort of along the same lines is in a family context, right? So children might feel disconnected from their parents, so they might take it out at school, or maybe they're being harmed at home, and they feel that disconnection because of the harm. And so they might take it out on others. And for whatever reason, and however well intentioned parents might be, they might be inadvertently creating disconnection, whether it's being overly critical of their children, or children are not misinterpreting feedback. And so then they try and project it to other on other people. And Again, it goes back to that feeling of, I don't feel connected here, so I'm going to try and get connection this way, and I get that connection by being mean to others because I get positively reinforced for doing so, right? And then, yeah, it, 
it kind of feels good, right, to uh, feel powerful. Because when we feel powerful, when we feel like we're on top of someone and like um, saying something harmful and other people are cheering us on, again, it's we feel rewarded and we get a dopamine rush and the those areas of the brain that have to do with like the reward systems of the brain just feed on that positive reinforcement. And so we just run with it and continue to engage but I think the biggest like the common thread among all of these things is this desire to feel connection and to feel belonging and when we don't we take it out on other people and get this false sense of security and false sense of connection because we see people cheering us on when they're liking our things and commenting and watching us Yeah. yeah Thank you so much. That was such a powerful answer. There were so many things you said that I think are so important. I think I'll start with the the self-esteem piece, which is, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking truly empowered people and people that truly love themselves, who who have an amount of self-love, who understand that they're enough, don't really need to disempower someone else. And so high self-esteem has usually been regarded as something that people think they should attain, but really it does come with that fear piece. So how can we really focus on helping young people feel empowered and feel truly connected to themselves and to other people and how important that piece is? The other piece that I thought about as you were talking was, and I wanted to ask you about it was, the bystander effect, the bystander mm-hmm. effect, and that the people ha- who contribute. So what do they gain from doing that? Like, what did, like, because like, I guess what, what I'm struggling with is, can they not see that that's hurting someone? What are your thoughts? <laughs> Good question. Well, there are several, I guess, reasons that bystanders don't do anything. So A common reason is one, they might just simply find it entertaining. And so they want to contribute and they themselves might gain, especially when it's, it's online and they can make comments and then people are starting to like what they say, then they get positively reinforced. Right. So if they think they're being quippy, (laughs) someone might (laughs) respond, right. (laughs) Someone might respond with a like or a comment or I agree. And then this fuels them to continue. And they're no longer even thinking about the original, a post they're thinking, about oh people liked what I had to say and so now I feel good about myself so there's that but also many people do feel like they should stand up to in a bullying situation Mm -hmm. but are scared so a common uh, response is I don't want to be the next person the next target And so out of fear, they don't say anything because they don't want to be a target. And also they think if they tell an adult, the adult won't know what to do. So there's a lack of trust. They don't think adults will know what to do. They think adults are going to punish them or make it obvious that they're the ones who told and then they get labeled as a tattletale. They think devices are going to be taken away. So then they don't tell an adult or they're reluctant or slow to tell an adult. And Another reason, too, is that they think it's none of their business. 
And because they think it's none of their business, they they just they don't want to jump in. It's like, oh, well, they'll handle it. This is not my thing. I'm just going to ignore it, right, or avoid thinking about this situation. The interesting part, though, is while there's all this fear about not telling or about avoiding the situation is that a lot of studies have found that you just need one or two people to stand up to what's going on and say, no, what you're doing is not cool. That disempowers the person doing harm because typically when they're getting a lot of likes, when they're getting a lot of positive feedback, it's rewarding them. And they're like, look at how much people love me because I'm doing this, right? Mm -hmm. But as soon as people start saying, no, what you're doing is not cool, suddenly that's that's the reinforcement they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear that they're that, that there's a dis, they're disconnecting, yeah. right? Suddenly what they were what they thought was creating connection with the people, their fans, right? Is yeah. they're getting that disconnect now when you say no, what you're doing is not cool. And that can diffuse the whole situation. Yeah. It got me thinking about checking in with how they're feeling about things or how they would like to be supported. So compassion plays a key role in stepping in, right? Because when you see someone, you have to put yourself in their situation. You have to be aware that they are, they might be experiencing some real discomfort and sort of saying, hey, you know, are you, are you in on the joke or are you actually feeling really disconnected right now? Because people might have different views on whether or not they want to be saved or not, right? And mm-hmm. so- I think stepping in is a part of compassion in terms of just being aware and wanting to assist someone who might be being socially isolated and, and, you know, separated from the group. How do you think compassion can really be helpful in terms of perhaps addressing cyberbullying? I'm going to talk about it in terms of bullying and cyberbullying together. Okay. Just because I think it's, it's not just about the online part. I think it's about relationships as a whole. And if we think about why people are aggressive to others and it's and if the root is feeling of disconnection right it's disconnection from self and it's also disconnection from others so you don't feel and this is all happening subconsciously right so we don't know that we're you know feeling disconnected from self but if we take a bit of time to reflect on why we want to harm someone and recognize that When I'm harming them, I feel a false sense of connection with the external feedback, then we can realize, okay, if it's about feeling disconnected with myself, how can I feel connected? How can, and that disconnection with self is, I don't, I'm not, I don't really love myself, right? I'm critical. I I don't think I'm good enough. Maybe I feel unworthy. I think I'm not good at this or that. I don't think I'm smart enough, beautiful enough, whatever enough, right? And when we have that self-critical voice in our mind and we have that disconnection with ourselves, we think we can make it better by getting other people to, to praise us, to like our comments, to whatever. So I think the first thing is we need to exercise self-compassion to help us to love ourselves and not speak rudely and disrespectfully to ourselves. So it's recognizing, oh, I feel so anxious right now, or I feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not, you know, um, worthy enough, not good enough. 
but rather than saying those things, it's speaking kindly and saying, you know what, it's okay. We, we all, and it's tapping into that, that common humanity piece of self-compassion, right? Where, where we acknowledge that lots of people, everyone actually at some point struggles, doesn't feel good enough, doesn't feel smart enough, doesn't feel kind enough, doesn't feel like enough. And re remembering that everyone feels this way, not just me. I'm not an outlier. I'm not weird. Yeah. I, and I, now I don't, I don't need to prove myself because we're all like this and that's okay. And so I'm feeling these things. I don't feel accepted, but I can accept myself and, and then now move forward with, okay, how can I, how can I love myself better, accept myself better and bring that connection within ourselves, you know, to light and this is obviously easier said than done. Yeah. And it's something that we need to, you know, teach people and, and, and guide ourselves and, and others towards. But I think the first aspect is, is trying to remember to love ourselves and speak kindly to ourselves as we would to a good friend, right? And then I think that helps us to, rather than say aggressive things to feel a sense of connection, say kind things to get a sense of connection. So same goal of wanting to connect with others, but one is doing it in an aggressive way and, one, and getting a false sense of connection. And one is doing it in a kinder, more compassionate way to get hopefully a, a more deeper and a more genuine sense of connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I learned in my own self-love journey was about how I could always come home to myself, even if the environment outside wasn't exactly out picturing what I desired or something that may have regularly have caused me conflict. And the more that I did that, the more that I could give to people from my overflow. So I think what you said is so spot on about trying to give to others. What you were also saying about gossiping and about Ooh. how uh, I didn't realize was it's considered social bullying and yet it happens in workplaces so often. Yeah, I see gossiping as a way to connect with someone, but without really sharing anything personal about myself. I'm actually yeah. sharing personal information from someone else as a way to yeah. connect with you. We don't always address the gossiping piece and see it as explicitly as bullying. Right. Yeah, we often think of bullying as a kid thing, right? So bullying yeah. happens with kids. Yeah. Harassment happens with adults. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it often goes unaddressed because we think adults can handle it themselves, right? With kids, we as the adults need to go in and, well, the typical response is punish them, right? But in the workplace, people are, I'm just either, I'm just going to mind my own business and walk away. These are adults. They do what they want to do. You do you kind of thing, Right. And then others will engage in the gossip and, and contribute to it. And so we often don't jump in because we think this is not my business. Adults are, adults can make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why we talk about or even do anything about, but you're right. Like, I think the, the reason why we gossip and spread rumors is because it's, it's entertaining at someone else's expense. And so we create this entertainment and we laugh together with, 
with the person we're gossiping with and we feel a sense of connection again, right? We feel connected because we're laughing and sharing these stories and creating a bit of drama around a certain situation or a certain person. And, and we feel good about that. It makes us feel connected, but it's a false sense of connection. It's a false sense of belonging because we're not actually being vulnerable about ourselves. We're actually harming someone else. And, but it goes back to that dopamine rush. We're getting positively reinforced. We feel this dopamine rush. And so then we continue, continue to do it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a false sense of connection and it's something that we don't address because we think that bullying is something that happens only with kids and adults can fend for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I've noticed when people had approached me with gossip from other people and the people that did it on an ongoing basis was really that they weren't sharing anything about themselves. And I was interested in them. I was interested in getting to know them, but they were always talking about someone else. And so that that's what kind of figured it out in my head. It sort of kind of a light bulb went on and said, oh, this is how they're getting connection with me without really ever really sharing about themselves and what's happening. So it's, mm-hmm. it was kind of a weird thing to reflect on. Since we're speaking about adults, I wanted to ask you, because you, you mentioned in your definition about bullying, that there's a power differential. Can like adults be bullied by younger people? Like a teacher, could a teacher be bullied by students if there is that power differential? Yeah, um, absolutely. And and this happens online and offline because power doesn't have to be about being bigger or necessarily, right? Or it doesn't have to be about being younger or older necessarily. It's about socially putting someone down. And so if you, and I've seen this, even my own experience where students in the class would embarrass teachers and Right. And so, I mean, the student is smaller, is younger, their grades actually depend on the teacher, but they are somehow feeling a sense of social power because when they're embarrassing the teacher, they get laughs from the other students. They get positive comments or whatever if they post certain things online about the teacher. And so, yeah, that power differential is not about necessarily age anymore about being physically larger it's about how do you almost socially dismantle someone right and socially yeah bring them down yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned that because even though teachers and professors have I guess systemic power right they have power to change your grade they have the power to I have seen students like make professors cry want to quit like it's it's just because it's like you said, an ongoing, very social, very, very visceral experience. And so, yeah. So I just, I was just curious about what the research had said about that. Um, The other thing I wanted to ask was, I know that the, one of the differences between, I mean, perhaps physical bullying and cyberbullying is that the internet could be kind of the great equalizer, right? So in, in, you had mentioned in your research that sometimes the lines get blurry because between those people that are perceived to be the victims and the people that are considered to be the perpetrators. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Right. So yeah, the internet does kind of equalize things in the sense that you no longer have to be bigger and stronger to beat someone up, right? So you can beat someone up online now. Anyone can do that. Mm -hmm. And you can do that at any time. And so that makes it a little bit more equal. But also when it comes to offline, it's harder to retaliate. Because if the person is so much bigger than you and is going to beat you up, a smaller person can't really retaliate, right? Yeah. Or even, even if they're, someone is louder than someone else or more popular, it's harder to retaliate. But I mean, online, it gives you an opportunity. So oftentimes, even offline, people want to retaliate but don't think they can. But now online, they can. And so now they can they can post embarrassing things and mean things now to the person who hurt them. And I mean, this is the, I guess, somewhat dangerous part is that because now both parties can harm online, it becomes a circular pattern where you Mm -hmm. harmed me. So now I'm going to retaliate. Well, now I'm going to retaliate. And it becomes this pattern that continues to occur where you no longer know who started it and who the real bully is, if you want to label it that way. And it it gets pretty messy. And, Mm -hmm. but it absolutely does. It equalizes the playing field because now both people can engage. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention uh, that I had observed from your research, because th- that caused me to reflect in terms of the language that we use, right? We call people bullies or perpetrators and so on. And I think what I would like to see is really a shift in focusing on behavior, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's bullying behavior, especially if you're seeing what your research is showing is that on the internet, it's really hard to, to, to differentiate who, you know, what was really at the core of this kind of negative interaction in this disconnection. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering how important do you think is language in in terms of addressing bully behavior, especially online? Yeah, I think it's uh, a big thing. And there's a big move now toward changing the language and removing these labels. Mm -hmm. Because when we're labeling someone as either like you are a bully or you are a victim, it insinuates that this is who they are as a being and that they can now identify with that label, like I am a victim and that's it, right? I, as a human being, am a victim or I, as a human being, am a bully. And when you identify yourself with a certain label, it takes away your feeling that you can change, right? And so what we want to do is help people realize, as you mentioned, that it's about the behavior Mm -hmm. and not your identity. You don't need to identify with what is happening to you. And when we have the label, we have a fixed mindset. So it's like, well, if I am this, and this is my identity, and I am just born like, or this has happened to me, so now I am a victim, or I am a bully, we feel like we can't fix it, we can't change it, this is just how it is. But if we talk about behavior, we adopt a growth mindset. So it's like, well, no, I can look at this behavior. I don't like what I'm doing or I don't like what's going on, but I can change what's going on and I can grow from this and I can take this experience and I can learn from it. So rather than embracing it as part of yourself, like this is just how I am, it's okay, this happened to me but 
now what can I do moving forward? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because I mean, the, the growth mindset, it implies you have choice. Mm-hmm. And when you have that fixed mindset, it makes you think, oh, this is just who I am. So I'm just going to be that. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was really well said. Like you almost, you give up, right? You've lost yeah. hope. It's just how I am. But yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> no, we can always change. We can yes. always choose something different. You can, you have choice. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that in your research, um, you, when you were, there were some case studies that were, that were presented. And I think there was a discussion about how some of the behavior that led to cyberbullying or what was considered cyberbullying really had to do with misunderstanding and miscommunications. And you thought, oh my gosh, had these people really had just taken out to talk about the, what caused the disconnection, right? It might have not have escalated. So from your perspective, how important do you think communication is in really helping de-escalate that, what may lead to online bullying? Right. Well, communication is is very important online and offline. I think we can sometimes be poor communicators in both contexts and a lot more has to be done in this in this area but i think oftentimes just speaking about communication in general is that we often want to throw a bunch of facts at people right and so we might <laughs> we might say you know what these this is all the evidence about x y and z and so this is why you need to kind of change your mind or do something different like what are you thinking right and so we try to lecture people into conforming into whatever way we want them to mm-hmm. but ultimately what more research is showing is that we should be trying to connect with people with a sense of curiosity and understanding. So while, while we might have an instinct to say, this is why I'm right for all these different reasons, you should listen to me. It should be approaching with, without an agenda, without having jumped to a conclusion and say, okay, let me just try and understand where you're coming from and understand why you think the way you think, where did this perspective come from? Because what we're trying to establish is connection. Because before you can have a deep conversation with someone about something, we need to establish a sense of trust and trust builds connection. And it's only when we try and do it this way that, well, I shouldn't say only, but an effective way is Mm -hmm is to when we build that connection is that people will then listen to us because if we go in saying you should blah 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 people immediately feel defensive and that you're trying to manipulate them or something and so we want to build that that connection through approaching things with curiosity this is of course easier said than done Mm because our instinct is these are the reasons why you're wrong and I'm right. Um, And so this is why you should change. And also when it comes to bullying is the sense of misunderstanding and misunderstanding occurs when we don't listen and we just jump in with our own story that we've concocted based on our own biases, (laughs) based on our own insecurities. And so again, when we feel that 
we, when we feel insecure, when we have these different stories that we've created in our mind about why someone might harm us, there's a disconnect and then we lash out and get mad at people <laughs> online. And that's sort of what happened in, in one of my studies where, where two young girls, they were chatting online and, and then all of a sudden one of the girls just disconnected and logged off and the person who was remaining got really upset and thought what happened why did this person just like log off like what did the how disrespectful like I can't believe they disrespected me in that way to just like shut off their computer without saying bye and so that person then started spreading rumors about this their friend but really what happened was the person who logged off's parents came in the room and she wasn't supposed to be online. And so she had to quickly shut down and it had nothing to do with her friend, but because they didn't come and talk about it, there were just assumptions being made, insecurities about the friendship existed. And so that's when the rumor spreading and the aggression started when really, if we approach with curiosity, approach without our agenda or our own story that we've made up, we can build that connection yeah. and try to get to the bottom of it, right? Mm-hmm. And what you're yeah. talking about is is compassion, right? Yes. Uh, coming at it from curiosity and giving people the benefit of the doubt. Assume that, that it wasn't intentional, that they are good people, that their intentions are good until proven otherwise, right? And yep. so, but- that leads me to my next question, which is <laughs> might be a bit of a challenging one. It relates to the cancel culture. And I wanted to ask if you're, from your perspective, do you feel that the current cancel culture is a form of bullying? I don't think it's a form of bullying, mostly because I don't think there is malicious intent. Mm-hmm. I think when people feel a need to cancel someone, it's coming from a place of fear right? It's fear of losing voice. And there's a fear that if they allow the opposing viewpoint to be vocalized, then their viewpoint will be silenced, right? And so there's this idea that, well, I better cancel your voice before you cancel mine even further. And this, again, it's about disconnection. It's I don't feel connected to you. I I feel like I don't have a platform to say what I want to say. And I don't want you to, what minimal or what little platform I do have, I don't want you to now take it away or, or cancel it. And so because of this fear, they, there's this desire to just like, stop it, just stop and make the fear go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That was well said. Yeah. Because I think, you know, where I struggle is that then it gets us further and further divided from one another. And we are not going to be able to get curious. And like you said, we're not going to be able to share each other's stories if we're not connected, right? And we're not able to trust each other. And so I see this great division in the world where we're not really sharing. I mean, I had a posted, written a post about this. Like we used to cancel the victims and now we're canceling the perpetrators, but we're really just still canceling, right? Yeah. And so how is it that we're going to come together? But I hadn't thought about the piece about them, the fears that they're losing their opportunity to have a voice. So, you know. mm-hmm. And both sides feel like yeah. 
they're losing their opportunity, right? And so then they, they're more forceful about it, right? And I, and there's this degree of, well, I need to have show power over you. And the way I can show power over you is by canceling you. And I mean, and that power part is a little bit like bullying, but the intention I think is, is still, I'm scared, right? And that's where, yeah, compassion comes in is like, okay, well now how do I work with that fear, your fear and my fear? How can yeah. I have compassion for both of our fears? And how can we reach some kind of uh, common common ground? Because like you mm-hmm. said, like cancel culture doesn't allow us to have an open dialogue and examine the issues on a deeper, more nuanced level. It's still very black and white. I'm right, you're wrong. Everything you do is wrong kind of idea. But we're really, at the end of the day, striving for the same things. We're striving for acceptance. We're striving for love. We're striving for belonging. We're striving for truth. We, we want all of those things. Those are our common goals, but somehow we're not listening to either side's struggle with these things. And then, yeah, the fear takes over mm-hmm. and then the aggression takes over. Yeah. Yeah. This is where we see compassion being key because especially self-compassion, because self-compassion allows us to sit with our discomfort and our shame and still lean in and still mm-hmm. have a conversation and still hold space for ourselves in order to engage in the dialogue where we might have wronged someone. If, yeah. you know, if you are the person who is behaving in a way that can be perceived as bullying or perpetrating, right? Can we talk a little bit about your research on mental health of young people who are using social media and online? Because I find sure. it really fascinating. Huh? I loved your insight in that you said it wasn't necessarily the amount of time the children spent online as much as what they were doing and their mental state, which I thought, wow, uh- <laughs> talk a little bit about what you meant by these findings. Yeah, so we often think that it's about time spent. And a lot of the media likes to say, well, how much time are kids spending online? But really what the research is showing is that it's not so much about time spent that we should be focusing on, but what are people doing online and why are they going online? And so if we want to talk about the mental health part of it, Research is showing that if people in general go online because they find that when they go online, they are getting rewarded for it. So they, they're, getting, they're posting pictures of themselves online or they're posting all sorts of things online and they get this positive reinforcement. They get likes, they get comments and people love them. And that's how they're garnering their, their sense of worthiness their sense, their self-esteem, that's how they're boosting their self-esteem. If people who are relying on these external sources for feeling good about themselves mm-hmm. are more likely to also struggle with mental health issues because what happens if they don't get those likes, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens if they're relying on these external sources for their sense of worth, when they don't get it, they feel very down. And they can get us, there's increased sense of anxiety, right? Because of that and stress, which can spiral into all sorts of other things. And so it's thinking more about, well, why are you doing these things? Also, it's about what we're doing online, not so much that we're online. So if we're going on and we're mindlessly scrolling or or posting things to get affirmation 
and just like liking things that might not be the best use of our time. Right. And so, <laughs> and I mean, lots of people do this, adults do this, teenagers do this. Yeah. And so, so that might not be the best way we want to be spending our time online. But if we are spending the same amount of time online, but we're reading, we're writing, we're coding, we're learning, we're, we're exercising some kind of creativity, that's maybe time well spent. So mm -hmm. same amount of time online, but doing one is productive and one is not productive yeah. and could potentially be harmful, right? So I think the thing, the question we need to ask is less about how much time we're spending, but how are we spending our time? Mm -hmm. So not yeah. that we're spending time, but mm -hmm. how are we spending time? And yeah, the more we spend time getting after trying to get affirmation from other people and like mindlessly, you know, scrolling and liking these things can have more of an impact on, on mental health than, than if we're doing other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find that, you know, like with my kids in the, with some of the kids that I know from our friends and so on, is that they're spending it socializing online. Like they play games together and like some of those games are like Fortnite. Yeah. I was talking to my kids about, wouldn't it be nice if there was a, a loving compassion game where people like, you know, they got extra points for being and they're like, that's so boring, mom. And I'm like, but yeah. wouldn't it be nice if we kind of, you know, fed what we want to experience? Anyways, you know what I don't understand though, is there's lots of kids who watch videos about other kids playing games. So they will yes. watch kids, but in a way that's learning, right? That's them learning. Yeah, they're learning about... different tactics and strategies yeah. and ways of doing things. Yeah, a lot of kids are doing that now. And yeah, they're learning about different strategies, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have a question about balance. One of the things we talk to our kids about is more, you know, they have specific screen time, right? And I, I love what you said about it is about kind of what they're doing online and how they're spending that time. But we also said that their life has to be balanced with exercise and going outside and so that we can, so that they can learn how to balance for themselves. Cause I think, you know, especially with this generation with them being on doing online learning as well, it makes it really challenging. How can, what can parents do to kind of worry a little bit less about the time that kids spend online but also kind of maybe kind of, you know, help the kids with that balance? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one way is to model it. Um, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I think it's, we want to set these boundaries for our kids, but then we don't practice setting boundaries. And I think setting, setting boundaries ourselves will, will model healthy behavior for them and talking to them about, especially as they, you know, 10 years old and older around, they can help make decisions around boundaries and have a conversation around, well, what do you think is a healthier thing to do? And we know that exercise is important. When are we going to schedule exercise? And maybe as a family or maybe as, you know, um, with your siblings, we'll schedule some times to, to do that. When are times when we shouldn't be maybe on a device? So, I mean, not having phones at the table is a common one, but maybe when we go for a walk together as a family, maybe don't bring your phone, right? So setting boundaries around those things and adults have to comply too, like they have to follow yeah. these rules too. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, creating these rules together will help teens have a sense of agency around it. Like they're not being told what to do. 
as we came up with this together, I am also trying to be healthy as in like I helped make these rules and we had a discussion around it and I verbally acknowledged that exercise is important. So if I acknowledged it, I should, you know, follow my own advice. So helping, helping young people to, to make the decisions, but making it together. Yeah, is useful. And that also creates a sense of trust. And if, if we talk about it naturally in this way, it young people are more likely to come to us too, when we're having trouble, Mm -hmm. or or when they're having trouble, and they're struggling with something. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I talk to my kids about is really around how to get that to be inspired and motivated to do these things. Like you want to live kind of a healthy lifestyle, but it shouldn't feel like a chore because it, because it, you know, like when I force myself to exercise and it feels like a chore, but if I'm doing it because I'm excited to, it feels great after exercise and right. So you want to inspire them to get good habits rather than to force them to do these things. But it's been a learning for myself and my husband as well, right? Like, I mean, I am terrible for being on my phone. So it's about being aware that my behavior is being modeled, is being mm-hmm. aware of, and especially, uh, you know, like at times, at one time I had two phones. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like, oh my God. But yeah, having that awareness. And you, and, and so I loved what you said, because it is about modeling and showing and, and little eyes are always watching, right? And seeing, mm-hmm. and, and they'll call you on it too. They're like, well, yeah. I'm on your phone and I can be yeah and then I go to the point of like well the quality of the stuff um, can you share with the audience what you're working on what you know what your research projects is there anything you want to promote well right now I am I I'm doing some work with the kindness project so this is the project that I'm working on with my friend Nikki Straza she's leading the kindness project which is a social emotional learning program and it has gained a lot of popularity in Enford and in helping to create caring communities in schools. And it's an eight-week program and it helps children with various social emotional learning skills. And right now we're in the process of evaluating, or we will be in the process. COVID has kind of slowed yeah. things down. But yeah, we're in we're working on evaluating this program and seeing exactly how beneficial it is to the kids. And then hopefully we'll be able to expand it because we've had a lot of good feedback and a lot of anecdotal evidence from both the school administrators and teachers and also the students. And so now we really want to see how far we can reach and what kind of data we can garner on exactly how awesome this project is. Oh, that's, that's so amazing. I would love for you and Nikki to come back and talk about the kindness project when it's on the way. I think it would be something that would be very beneficial for our audience. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Danielle, for being on the show today. It was was such a a great chat. We learned so much. We really, really appreciate it. You know, you, you teach at Laurier, so people can check out your profile at Laurier. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Love and Compassion podcast. Uh, We'll see you soon. Have a great day. Thank you.